This judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You may be seated. I am more than excited <clears throat> to tackle this passage today. What a th- three-verse passage. You kind of <clears throat> have some fear sometime that maybe you can't fill an hour with three verses, but <laughs> yeah, we're not going to have any problems there. So, um, How many of y'all ever heard of Kathy Matea? Over half of you. That's good. West Virginia girl. Born in South Charleston. She made good in the country music scene, uh, breaking in in the early 80s and produced a bunch of really good songs over the years. Amanda and I went and saw her in Lewisburg a few years ago. It was just her with a guitar and another guy with a guitar. And it was one of the best live performances I've ever heard in my life. If you ever get a chance to go see her, I think right now she's touring on an acoustic tour with Susie Bogus for all you 90s country music fans. So I would say go check it out if you can. She actually hosts Mountain Stage now, which is pretty cool. Um, In 1987, (coughs) excuse me, conscious of covering my cough. Uh, 1987, she had a major hit with a song called 18 Wheels and a Dozen Roses. Let me read you this song. I love this. Charlie's got a gold watch. Don't seem like a whole lot after 30 years of driving up and down the interstate. But Charlie's had a good life, and Charlie's got a good wife. And after tonight, she'll no longer be counting the days. And then the chorus. 18 wheels and a dozen roses, 10 more miles on his four-day run, a few more songs from the all-night radio, and he'll spend the rest of his life with the one that he loves. I'm going to cry. They'll buy Winnebago, set out to find America. They'll do a lot of catching up, a little at a time. With pieces of the old dream, they're going to light the old flame, doing what they please, leaving every other reason behind. 18 wheels and a dozen roses, 10 more miles on his four-day run, a few more songs from the all-night radio. And he'll spend the rest of his life with the one that he loves. That's really good. That gold watch that Charlie got don't seem like a whole lot, does it? You give your 30 years of your life to a company and they say, go home, here's a watch. But the watch wasn't the goal, was it? Waiting at the end of this last four-day run after 30 years of driving was a woman. His wife. And a life for them together, catching up and doing what they please. That was the end game. That was the end game of all those years of being apart and counting down the days. Now, no more countdowns. No more separation. Just Charlie, his wife, who's never named, oddly enough. Him and her, a Winnebago, and lots and lots and lots of time together catching up and doing what they please. Yeah, that's a goal. And I couldn't help but think of old Charlie and those roses as I read and reread and thought about our passage today. Last run, last mile, final goal. We said last week that the passage from verses 1 to 5 of 2 Timothy 4 were Paul's last clear charge to Timothy. And next week, in the last passage, the actual last message, it's going to be more about logistics, taking care of day-to-day business type of directions, remembering some people. But today, in this passage, Paul will spend these three brief but powerful verses to reflect on his own life his own ministry. Paul's going to take this opportunity near the end of his life to judge how he's done. If he's met his goal, he's given himself a job review of sorts. 
retirement, well, the end of his work, has come. And Paul's going to grade himself, so to speak. Will he get a gold watch? That really don't seem like a whole lot for 30-plus years of gospel faithfulness. How's he feeling about everything? How's he processing end of life? Is he scared? Is he worried? How's his faith holding up? Well, we'll see that in spades today as we look at these last evaluative, powerful words of this great apostle looking at his life. I'm going to read them again, and then I'll pray. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who've loved his appearing. Let's pray. Father, our days are in your hands. Our path has been carved out by you for your glory, for our good, for the good of those in this world that you loved so much you sent your son to die for us. Help us now, we ask God, by the power of your Holy Spirit to understand these words and then, as we leave here, give us the power to live them out. And if there be anyone At the sound of my voice, who does not know Jesus as their Savior, who have not had their sins forgiven, Holy Spirit, give life, we ask, and grant repentance. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Well, there's one of Paul's favorite words here at the beginning especially at the end of a first verse in a passage we're covering. And it's always referring back to what was just said before. For. And so what was said before was our passage last week, 1 to 5, where Paul called on Timothy to preach the word. And he had reminded Timothy that people will wander off into myths, not wanting to hear the pure, true word preached. And then he had called on Timothy in verse 5, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Preach the word. People will want preachers to tickle their ears and they'll wander away from the truth. But Timothy, you, you fulfill Your ministry. And then today, four. Timothy, you do your work. Minister, serve, fill it all the way up. Seal a step and fill it back up. Four. Timothy, take the torch. Do all that you are called to do. Four. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. Which is Paul's way of saying, Timothy, it's up to you now. Four, my time's up. Timothy, it's imperative that you run well and carry out your life's tasks to completion because I'm gone, Timothy. Here we see the baton, the torch, being fully, literally passed. Paul's leg of the race is over. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. And as the pen passes over the parchment and the ink is transferred there, Paul is announcing that the era of Paul the Apostle is over. And he expresses it here in this verse in two statements, both very clear and very expressive. First he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. We don't really understand that. It's very Jewish language for sure. And he's referring back to a practice that was common in the sacrificial system of the Jews, which is explained in the Torah. But what's it mean? I think we've heard and even said things about being poured out as a drink offering when we hear this verse and other things. Paul references it in one other place in Philippians 2, 14-18. Do all things, he says to the Philippians, without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering 
upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad. Oh, I lost my control. Should be glad and rejoice with me. So he says here he's being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of the Philippians' faith. But here in 2 Timothy, it's a different mindset. He's being poured out as a drink offering. So what's it mean? I found a really good explanation of the drink offering by a guy named Peter Lightheart, Presbyterian minister. And I wanted to quote it, but it's literally three pages long. So I won't do that to you, okay? Uh, I will post it later on the Facebook page because you need to read it. It's awesome. It's great. So what I try to do here is let me just try to summarize what he said. So Leviticus and Numbers give specifics of the drink offering. God commanded it. God explained it there. He made provisions for those sacrificial Jews who are coming to worship. What they would do is they'd pour out wine on top of their meat offerings and their grain offerings. So they've got this meat offering literally cooking on the fire. They've got this grain offering cooking on the fire. It smells like Texas Roadhouse because the meat's cooking and the bread's cooking. That's, that's, oh, you know, you walk in, you're like, whoa. And then they would pour the, the wine on top of it, and it would be it's like a fruity floral bouquet on top of those other wonderful smells. And the drink offering was the only type of offering that was given completely to God because the worshipers and the priests would get portions of the other offerings, but not the drink offering. It was poured out completely, and it was all God's. It was spent on God alone. But when God is giving them the the law there in the Exodus... He, he doesn't make provision for a drink offering until they get into the promised land. God was saying, I won't partake of this offering until you're in the promised land. Sound familiar? God would wait until they were in their rest before he partook of the drink offerings that they offered. Lightheart puts it this way, Only after the Lord had defeated the enemies of his people and given his people a restful dwelling in the land would he accept the wine of the libations. Libations being drink offering, pouring out, end of quote. And the last thing that Lightheart points out is this, the drink offering, like the grain offering, was symbolic of the works of the worshiper. This is a further reason why libations had to await entrance into the land. Entering the land not only brought rest from wandering and from enemies, but also brought a renewed demand for dominion. The fruits of that dominion over the land, grain, oil, and wine, were to be offered to the Lord, end of quote. And there's a lot more in that. Like I said, I'll post it later. And please read it. It's very good. But take all that together and put it in the context of, uh, context of what Paul is saying here in 2 Timothy 4.6. He says, he is already being poured out as a drink offering. He is being poured out. Now think about that. This man is literally going to be beheaded. You figure there might be some blood spilled when somebody gets their head cut off? The answer is yes, and a lot of it. I'm already being poured out. And his blood will literally be poured out of his body. But it's not tragic. It's not unfortunate. It's an offering to God. Completely to God. As a fragrant offering to him as worship for his glory and for his praise. Paul's works had been offered to God as he did them, but now his death would be the wine on top of it all. Filling heaven with the fragrance of worship at his final breath. Wow. And it's already happening, Paul says, even before the blood is literally spilled and the life is literally ended. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And note that he's not doing the pouring. He is being poured out. And who's doing the pouring? Is it God? Is it the Romans? Wouldn't be the first time God had used the Romans to pour out the blood of someone as an offering to him, right? 
Like his Lord before him, Paul was being poured out as an offering to God, by God, through the hands of Roman men in positions of what they called power. And man, we could spend so much time here, but we've got to press on. We've got no hour. No problem filling up an hour. So I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. He also says that the time of his departure has come. He's being poured out as a drink offering and the time of his departure has come. That sounds simple enough. But the word for departure itself is so rich. John MacArthur points out that the Greek word for departure is analusis. Analusis. And MacArthur points out that it has many meanings. Listen to this. Including unyoking a working beast. Unchaining a prisoner. Taking down a tent. Loosing a ship's mooring ropes. Now just take those individually and think on them with me for a minute or two. Paul's departure, his analusis, is like unyoking a working beast. Paul has borne the burden of the gospel ministry for probably upward of 30-ish years now. And man, it's been really good and easy and prosperous for him, right? Not in worldly terms. But now, with that labor over, the yoke's being taken off. Imagine how an ox or a horse or something laboring as a beast of burden with a yoke on its neck feels when that yoke is taken off after an extended work session. It's like taking your shoes off at the end of a work day. Like, oh man, release the hounds. Has to feel awfully good. It's a huge relief. Imagine a prisoner being unshackled and allowed to walk free after years of imprisonment. Picture the cords of a tent stretched tight for however long and then the pegs being pulled up and all that tension is released. And the cords finally relax and they repose to lazy, haphazard patterns on the ground. Or a ship held to a barnacled post, the tide pulling it against the stationary pier and the rigging finally untied to allow the vessel to be driven by the water to where it's going. Time of my departure is at hand. Paul's not moaning. He's not mourning this moment. No, indeed, for him, it's rest. Total repose into peace and release and freedom. He's being poured out. He's being unbound. He certainly didn't begrudge or despise the years of labor. He had called them a drink offering in that Philippians passage. But he also was not dreading the end of those labors. He was looking forward to it, expectedly, joyfully, even longingly. This departure is not from a desirable place to an undesirable one. Also not from an undesirable to a desirable. It's a release from toil to rest. Charlie's got a gold watch. 30 years are over. And he's going home. It's from rewarding labor to rewarding rest. Paul's about to die. And he knows that that means that he's being untethered from all that has engaged him for the past 30 years. He's also being untethered from brother ass. As C.S. Lewis referred to the flesh. No more wrestling with sin. No more wretched man than I am. Freedom. Release. Relief. He's looking forward to it. He had debated in the past which was better to stay or go. I can get there. Philippians 1, 22 to 26. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. This was earlier in his life, talking to the Philippians. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire, I'm losing my control up here again. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. 
But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. In that passage at that time to the Philippians, Paul says that he would rather depart and go be with Christ. But he knew it would be better for the Philippians, and it's the plan of God, for him to stay and labor with and for them. Well, back here in 2 Timothy, Paul says it's departure time. He's not lamenting that. He's being set free after long years of fruitful toil and meaningful relationships. And while it's been incredibly hard, the work has been wonderful, but the reward's going to be abundant wonderful. Any Cedarmont kids out there besides my kid? No. I'm just going to leave that there then. And so Paul says here, Here and now, as he's being poured out as a drink offering, the time of his departure is at hand. Set me free, why don't you, babe? But he does stop to look back on what has transpired leading up to this release in verse 7. Verse 7, back in 2 Timothy 4. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. So yeah, it seems that Paul has shifted from present the present time in his final statement, to looking back to the past. There are three I have statements in this verse that all describe his evaluation of his past ministry and life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It's three ways of saying I did it. We've seen him give all kinds of illustrations for the Christian life and ministry in these pastoral epistles And we even saw in 2 Timothy 2, Paul called Timothy to consider the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. Well, here he compares his own work to a fight, a race, and the faith. I have fought the good fight. Paul could surely speak to life and ministry as a fight, couldn't he? Literally beaten and bloodied and stoned and left for dead on multiple occasions, Paul knew what it was to fight. And he didn't fight back there. He absorbed the blows. But he knew he was in the middle of a spiritual fight. He also spoke several times of that spiritual battle that the Christian life is. Think Ephesians 6. And here he says that he has fought the good fight. There was a fight. I didn't run from it. And I didn't hold back in the midst of it. The literal Greek translation is, I have agonized the good agony. Agonizomai hokalos agon. That's the literal word. I've agonized through every battle, every round, every skirmish. And I've done it well. I can look back and hold my head up knowing that I didn't lay down, I didn't give up, and I never ran from a fight. And it was a good fight. Not like some 30-second pay-per-view knockout that you paid $150 for. They're like, oh, No. What? It's been a slobber knocker. And I've had my slobber knocked and I've knocked a little slobber myself. I have fought the good fight. Paul also says he's finished the race. Lots of different thoughts come to mind here. And we know that he's referring to a long, hard ministry. So we shouldn't think 100-yard dash here for sure more like a marathon with Spartan race obstacles over and over. There are some very odd, weird people who run long distances or marathons or such and have record times that they're shooting for. But most people that I know that train for a marathon, they just want to finish. Triathlon, Spartan race, I already mentioned. I just want to finish. I knew somebody that um, trained for a triathlon and they completed it and they were the very last person to finish the line, cross the finish line. And it was well behind everybody else. And you know what they said when they crossed the finish line? I did it. I did it! Forget the fact that everybody else has packed up and gone home. I did it! I finished it! And what an accomplishment that is, right? Finishing is winning. And here Paul looks back at the race he's ran and is gladly saying, I finished this race. 
And that's success. Because a lot of people don't finish this race. They drop out or they fall away or they're injured and can't finish. Paul says confidently and joyously, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. And I have kept the faith. Seemingly like a precious deposit that's been entrusted to him by his master, Paul says he's kept the faith. The word kept is a word that means to hold fast, to attend to carefully, to guard. Paul says he's guarded the faith this whole time and he's made it to the end having guarded it. And the word faith here is not just referring to Paul's mental assent or even heart belief in Jesus. Not just that faith, but the faith. Paul had been entrusted with preaching a gospel that was delivered to him by a revelation from Jesus himself. With Paul saying that he has kept the faith, he means he's guarded it well, and he's saying he has not only believed himself, but he's kept the message pure and accessible for all those who he delivered it to, and he made it pass-alongable. I've kept the faith. Again, with this three-phrase list, Paul is talking about his life and ministry. He has kept the faith, means that he has maintained it all the way through, kept it to the end. He has believed and served others to help them believe the God-given gospel and the pure sound doctrine that makes this faith the Christian faith. He's kept it all. Paul's saying in these three statements that he did Everything that had to be done from start to finish in this calling and ministry that made up his converted life. I can't help but think about Rocky Balboa. Standing after the rematch with Apollo at the end of Rocky II, spoiler alert, he wins. And what's he say? Yo, Adrian, I did it! He had fought a good fight. He'd went the distance. And he'd never stopped believing since Adrian woke up from her coma and said, Win. He never stopped believing. And he fought the whole way. And he finished. And he won. And that's kind of what Paul's doing here. Bloodied, beaten, bruised, and exhausted. I did it. Paul is saying, I did it. It's finished. Yo, Timothy, I did it. I guess a better comparison is Jesus on the cross saying to Telestai, it's finished. Paul is saying, I did it. It's finished. Unhitch the wagon. Set me loose. I did my job. Let me go home. Speaking of going home, okay, Paul, we'll set you loose. We'll cut you loose. What's up the road for you? Verse 8 is up the road for you. Wow. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So we saw the present, and we've seen the past, and now here Paul addresses his future, and what a future it is. Henceforth, he says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Paul looks into his future, and he sees something that's already prepared for him. There is laid up for me. Paul's got a heavenly layaway. Actually, God has laid something up for Paul in heaven. It is the Lord who will award it. We'll look at that in a second. But this crown business, I've seen a lot of different folks say a lot of different things about crowns that are mentioned in the New Testament. There are those who delineate the different ones mentioned. There's five, by the way. The crown of life, the crown of victory, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of life, and the crown of righteousness. And some people say you get different ones for different service. Others say these are just allegorical, referencing rewards in general. Some say crowns just mean achievements, like when, you know, the athlete competes according to the rules, he gets a perishable wreath, Paul would say. 
We labor for an imperishable one. I'm going to be honest with you, I don't buy into any of it, truthfully. I think here, in this passage, what does it say? What does it mean? I think here Paul is saying that he will receive the crown of righteousness, meaning that God will finally complete the righteousness that was given as a free gift of God's grace at his salvation. The crowning moment. The final phase, so to speak. We have been declared righteous. We're being made righteous. And we will finally and completely be righteous in the future. Paul says that the crown of righteousness is already laid up for him in heaven. And one day soon, after his departure from his earthly tent, he will be crowned with final, perfect righteousness. Declared righteous. That's laid up for him. The Lord has laid it up for him, like we said earlier. And Paul refers to this Lord here as the righteous judge. That's very Jewish language too. David Stern says in his Jewish New Testament commentary, quote, The Jewish burial service contains these lines. O true and righteous judge, blessed be the true judge, all of whose judgments are righteous and true. End of quote. I love that. Paul looks to his death and he sees Jesus as the righteous judge and he knows that the verdict that will be handed down to Paul is righteous. The Lord, the righteous judge, has laid up for him the crown of righteousness. It's a done deal. Ask Paul if he knows for sure that he's going to heaven. He would say, yes. I know that Jesus has my crown there. And on that day, I will be judged Paul the righteous. Jesus has prepared that for me. So this crown, I don't think at all, is a reward for work done. Although we will be rewarded for our works. That's a different passage, different message. No, this crown is the gift of the righteous judge, making his people righteous by grace through faith. He, the judge, has laid it up for Paul. Paul didn't earn it. Paul doesn't deserve it, but he's been faithful working. He didn't earn righteousness. It's a free gift of God. By grace, through faith. The judge has laid up this crown for Paul, but not just Paul. And not only to me, there's a lot of crowns up there. The righteous judge has a storehouse full of crowns. Righteousness crowns. And he's going to hand them out like cotton candy on that last day. You get a righteous crown. You get a righteous... Everybody gets a righteous crown. Not universalism, everybody. All the redeemed. The righteous judge has laid up crowns for all who have loved his appearing. The righteous judge is going to appear, and when he appears, some people are going to love his appearing. And everybody that loves his appearing is going to get a righteousness crown. A crown of righteousness. If you are in Christ, your righteousness crown is already laid up in heaven for you. Oh, man. Well, but I've not been very good. Me either. I suck at life more days than not. And my crown's laid up for me by the righteous judge. All the people of God who have been given the righteousness of Jesus as a free gift of God's grace will be crowned with righteousness when Jesus appears. When Jesus comes back, and He will, in a real body, as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords and the judge of the righteous and the wicked, the wicked who don't receive a crown of righteousness, who are condemned for their lack of righteousness, 
when he comes back as king, as lord, as judge, all who know him and have been saved by him will receive the crown of righteousness. He's already laid it up for them in heaven. And Paul knows that to be true before his death. He also knew it almost 2,000 years before today. It's a settled fact in the heavens. The Lord, the righteous judge, will award these crowns of righteousness to Paul and to all who have loved this judge's appearing. Listen, it is done. You ain't working to earn your crown. You're working to please your Lord and there will be rewards and you will be judged and rewarded for the good works that He has done through you, oddly enough. But the righteousness ruling is already finished. It's already done and your crown is ready for you. I judge you, Jason, the righteous. Thank you. That's all I can say. It's done. Henceforth, to use Paul's word, there has been laid up for me, for you, for us who are in Christ, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to us on that day of his appearing. And let me tell you what, church, that's really Really, really good news. No wonder Paul ain't sad. Cut the rope, y'all. Bring that sword. Cut this joker off. I'm ready to go. My head's too big anyway. It's hard to carry around. It's awaiting a crown that's already laid up for it. Good news. So, how do we apply this? We could spend a lot more time here. But we need to apply it, right? Interpretation without application is not good. We're going to look at four E's. E. We can go now. Listen's on it. Eternal, exit, engage, and eager. Eternal, exit, engage, and eager. First is eternal. What I see from Paul in this passage is the epitome, to use another E word, of an eternal perspective. He can look at the present. I am being poured out now. The time of my departure has come. That's now. He can look at the past. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. And he can look into the future. There is a crown laid up for me when the righteous judge appears. It will be awarded to me on that day at his appearing. That's a good, healthy, eternal perspective. Living in light of eternity. Not just the moment. Let me tell you what. There are too many moments that will overwhelm and conquer you in the present. There are too many junk things that happen in the past. And there's too much uncertainty up in the future for us to live without an eternal perspective. You will be overwhelmed by the past, the present, and the future if you don't see it all in the big picture. Are you suffering? Are you struggling? Are you hurting? If that's all you're focused on, you're going to despair. Do you define yourself by what happened back there somewhere? If that's all you are focused on, you're going to despair. If you're like me and you're worried about every micro detail of the future that you can't see... And your favorite question is, what if? You're going to despair. Paul could look back, look right here, and look forward and say, it's all good. Not all easy. But I see it in the right perspective. 
I'm looking through eternal lenses from eternity past into eternity future. God's got a plan. And God's eternal purposes will not fail. I've joked with a few people over this past week, talked about how life can be really hard. And in baseball, if you get a hit one time out of four, you're a Hall of Famer. One time out of three, you're one of the best hitters that's ever lived, if that's your lifetime average. Now, think about that for a second. One out of four, you're a Hall of Famer. 250. That means three times out of four, you strike out, hit into a double play. You failed. Three times out of four, and you're a Hall of Famer. That's life, y'all. You're going to mess up. You're going to blow it probably three times out of four. And your crown's already laid up for you. Any of you that think you're batting 500, you're wrong. I promise you're wrong. You're wrong more than half the time. I promise you. And God knows that too. He knows our frame that we are dust. As for this God, His way is perfect. God's batting a thousand. Has always, will always. Has always and will always. In the midst of your... Some of us are batting like 150, okay? We're like striking out nine times out of ten. We're pulling a Joey Gallo. Only my son will get that joke. Sons. And if I don't have an eternal perspective, I'm going to despair. I'm going to despair of myself. I'm going to despair of my situations. I'm going to look around and think that God has failed. And I promise you, He hasn't. In the midst of your situation, maybe it's as bad as you could possibly imagine it. He's batting a thousand. So our trust is in Him. That's the eternal perspective. Hebrews 12, 1-2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the eternal perspective. Mm. May it be so in our lives. So eternal. Now exit. Death. Outside of the return of Christ in bodily form to judge the world... Unless that happens, 10 out of 10 of us will die. 100 out of 100. Every human being ever has died. The soul that sinneth shall die. If you eat of the tree of this, eat of the fruit of this tree, you will die. Well, you won't surely die. Yes, you will die. The wages of sin is death. Oh, man, death. You're, you're getting morbid. No! Can we change our minds about death? Should we change our minds about death? What's the worst thing that could happen to you? I could die. What do you know about death? We need a good, healthy, biblical doctrine of death. You are a body, a soul, and a spirit. Body is your physical part. Spirit is the life that God's placed in you. Your soul is what you think and what you feel. Your thoughts and your emotions. God created Adam out of the dust, a a, a body. He breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and became a living soul. Pray that God would keep you body, soul, and spirit until his coming. So death is this. The spirit departs from the body. 
James says the body without the spirit is dead. Now, the scripture says clearly that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when I breathe my last and the brain waves stop or whatever, I don't completely get physical death. I don't know when you're technically dead. But when the body stops functioning, the spirit departs and goes and bees with Jesus. And the body gets buried in the ground or burned into ashes or fed to the sharks. I don't know. So the body is still dead. Oh, woe is me. My body is dead. But wait a minute. I'm in the presence of Jesus in my spirit. Where'd my soul go? We'll get to that in a second. To depart and be with Christ, Paul said, is far better. Far better. So death, when my spirit leaves my body, that's far better. Because my spirit is, is in the presence of Jesus and my body is wasting away. Well, what happens? Let me tell you what. One day, the clouds are going to part. Jesus is going to arrive and he's going to call your body out of the grave. Yeah, righteous judge, that's me, I heard me. Amen. Amen me. <laughs> that's funny, right there. So Jesus comes down and you're like, what if he can't put my body back together? Come on, y'all. He spoke the universe into existence. If he's got to gather the little molecules that were you and put them back together in a body, he can do that. He will do that. You shouldn't get cremated because Jesus can't put your body back together. Come on, y'all. He's God. He's going to call all those molecules and He's going to reconstruct your body and you're going to come out of the ground. And your spirit's going to re-enter your body and you're going to be body, soul, and spirit for eternity. When you die, your body will be dead. The old go to the graveyard, I know He's not there. Well, technically He is. His body's right there. But his spirit, his life is with Christ. All kinds of funky things out there about death and what happens at death and are you really dead? And Thomas Jefferson had wrecked his brain because they talked about a guy that drowned and was in the, in the pond for 24 hours and then he came back to life. And Jefferson's like, well, he couldn't have been dead then. Well, if he was dead, what, what, what blew his mind. We don't understand it because we ain't been there yet. But the Bible is clear to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And when the Lord descends, he's going to call the dead in Christ first. Now they're coming with him in their spirits. And when he comes back, their body comes out of the grave, reunites with their spirit, and they're in a glorified body, body, soul, and spirit for eternity. To depart and be with Christ is far better. That's death. So prepare for that now. Think about it. Think about those who have gone on before. Their spirits are with Jesus if they were in Christ. Their body is in the ground. I don't know how all that works, but I know that to be true. And one day their body is going to meet their spirit and they're going to be in a glorified body, a sinless, perfect body like the rest of us who are in Christ forever. We're sad when people die. That's not wrong. They're not here anymore. We miss them. We love them. And we grieve as those who have hope that not only we will see them again, they'll see them again. There comes my body. Bam. I'm looking good. Ecclesiastes 7.1 A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. The day of death is better than the day of birth. That's biblical. Philippians 1, 23-24, I'm hard-pressed between the two. We already looked at this. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I want to die. Not right now. I don't desire death, but let me tell you, I don't fear it. It's cutting loose the bonds, setting the donkey free, y'all. I'm a wander on home. 
That's what death is. And it's good. God even redeemed what we would consider the worst thing that could ever happen to us. And he made it beautiful and awesome and glorious. Oh, death, where is your sting? Go home and read 1 Corinthians 15. And then think about death. So eternal exit. I better hurry. Engage. Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Who wants to say that at the end of all things? A couple of you, good. Are you engaged in your life right now so that when you get to the end of it, you can say, I did it. If you're not engaged right now, you might have some hesitation on that last day. I batted .043. Yeah, the rest of us did too, truthfully. But that means we've got to engage now with an eternal perspective, not afraid of exiting, but engaged, given everything I have to right now. Engage now. Look at the task at hand and complete it by the power of the Holy Spirit, given the grace that only comes from Him. Engage now. We saw 2 Timothy 2, 4-5. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Be a good soldier. Train like a good athlete. Engage in life right now. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That's what it means to engage. Eternal exit engage in this last one. Eager. When we have an eternal perspective with a biblical view of death and we're engaged in the race and the fight right here, right now, we will be eager to come to the end of this life. You're like, well, I'm not there. I get it. There's a lot of good things going on right now. There's a lot of beauty and joy and smiles and Twinkies in this world. They're good. Twinkies are good. And they're indestructible too. So. But this is not the end. This is not the crown. These are moments we get to enjoy along the way. He's given us all things to enjoy. But I want to get to the point where I'm eager to leave them all behind, even while I'm engaging them right now. We will all die unless Jesus comes back first, and we should look for that even more. But either way, one day, we sing it at the end, we will see Jesus face to face. Are you eager for that? When this passing world is over, we will see you face to face and forever we will worship. Jesus, you are all to us. I got to go on a week-long training next week and I'm going to be gone Monday to Friday and I'm going to be eager to get back home. Are you eager to get home now? Come, Lord Jesus. Is that your prayer day to day? Can you keep me alive at least until I get married, Lord? I'd like to have a couple kids. Grandkids I've heard are really cool. Nothing wrong with wanting those things, but to be eager is to want to see Jesus face to face even more than all of them. To hear one day, Matthew 25, 23, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been perfect in everything you did. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. To hear that? Are you eager for that? Not perfect. You did it. You were perfect. I'll allow you in. No. You were faithful over a little. Enter into the joy of your master. The eagerness of feeling the completed task. Knowing it is finished. 
and seeing Jesus face to face and hearing him say, well done. You are a good and you are a faithful servant. Here is the crown of righteousness. I laid it up for you a long time ago. Eternity passed, actually. I'm eager to hear that. Paul was too, Philippians 3, 8 to 11. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, sweet death, glorious death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. John MacArthur, I shake my fist at him because this is so stinking good. We're going to finish with it. He mentioned a poem by Robert Browning. title of the poem is Incident of the French Camp. Anybody heard this? I don't know. Listen to this. We'll be done with this. You know, we French stormed Ratisbon, a mile or so away on a little mound, Napoleon. Stood on our storming day with neck out thrust. You fancy how, legs wide, arms locked behind, as if to balance the prone brow, oppressive with its mind. Just as perhaps he mused, my plans that soar to earth may fall. Let once my army leader Lons waver at yonder wall. Out twixt the battery smokes there flew a rider bound on bound, full galloping, nor bridle drew until he reached the mound. Then off there flung in smiling joy and held himself erect by just his horse's mane, a boy. You, could, you hardly could suspect. So tight he kept his lips compressed, scarce any blood come through. You looked twice ere you saw his breast was all but shot in two. Well, cried he, Emperor, by God's grace, we've got you, Radisbon. The marshal's in the marketplace, and you'll be there anon to see your flag bird flap his vans, where I, to heart's desire, perched him. The chief's eye flashed, his plan soared up again like fire. The chief's eye flashed, but presently softened itself as sheaths a film the mother eagle's eye when her bruised eaglet breathless. You're wounded! Nay, the soldier's pride. Touched to the quick, he said, I'm killed, sire. And his chief beside, smiling, the boy fell dead. Let me tell you what just happened. This young boy had fought in this battle and he'd spilled his life's blood and he ran to his general, his emperor, cloven in two by shots. And he said, we got it for you, Lord. We did it. And Napoleon said, well, you're wounded. He said, no, sire, I'm not wounded. I'm killed. And he falls dead smiling. You're wounded! Nay, the soldier's pride. Touched to the quick, he said, I'm killed, sire. And his chief beside, smiling, the boy fell dead. Let's die well. And as I stumble up on the shore of glory, Jesus says, you're wounded. Nah, I'm killed. And I'm with you now. And he says, well done. Well done. Hail the victorious dead. Eternal exit engaged and eager to die and get a lot more than just a little gold watch. We get to spend the rest of our lives with the one that we love. Nay, I'm killed. Let's pray.
As for this God, we proclaim, Father, that your way is perfect. You have not and you will not fail. And you have invited us into your plan, into your purpose for your glory. And though you slay me, I will hope in you. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God, help us to engage right now, looking forward to our exit, being eager to see you face to face, engaged in the moment, looking forward to that final day when our spirit leaves our body and we're in your presence. Let us drop not a single anchor. And may we die well. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior. Through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed, but please stay and eat with us if you can.